Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Automation is everywhere in our lives. It's built into our own personal activities in basic and complex forms. When I arrive home, I park the car and automatically put my keys in the same place. Why? Because that's what I've trained myself and to be fair, also trained the rest of the family to do. Some of these actions can be presented with simple logic statements that some might remember from their early learning days. If this happens, then do this, otherwise do that. It forms the basis of some computer programming languages, but even with some clever nesting and sophisticated branching quickly becomes unwieldy and challenging to create complex task rules. Early computing was based on programming languages that incorporated these statements and then added branching capabilities, but the techniques have moved far beyond that and we now have high-level tools that can ingest large amounts of content and pull it together into some proxy of knowledge. Do you remember Big Blue beating Garry Kasparov in 1997? That was chess and considered a milestone at the time. But progress continued to be made, better tools and knowledge, and IBM made the news again with Watson, the Jeopardy-winning AI computer that beat former champions Brad Rutter and Ken Jennings in 2011. What followed was another gold rush to the nirvana of AI and machine learning solutions to solve everything, everywhere. The reality was different from the expectations, and while the envelope was pushed, there was much to be disappointed about in the trail of failures left in the wake of that hype. Babylon Health launched in 2013 to much fanfare and interest and overpromising of capabilities, including the diagnosis of disease, more accurately than doctors. Not so much. The trajectory for chess is informative for where this technology might go with healthcare. At the time of Big Blue, there were many who predicted the demise of chess and chess players. But the game and interest are very much alive, but in, in a more blended and creative way. There are tournaments with no AI or computer support allowed, but there are many that allow the use and support of computers and even team-based approaches with computers and humans all contributing as members of the team. It is the combination of both human and computer-based systems that creates the most creative and winning teams. Join me this week on Healthcare Upside Down Show in our series focused on ChatGPT and how it applies to healthcare as I talk with Dr. John Lee, 
He's an emergency room physician, digitician, and former clinical informaticist and chief information officer. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So uh, as part of our chat GPT series, we're uh, discussing that and uh, talking about the potentials and also some of the pitfalls. You recently um, used the tool to essentially create uh, or at least pull together a summarization of academic papers. Is that now a job that's disappearing and we uh, are going to see automation of uh, academic uh, uh, paper production? Uh, I don't think so, uh, at, at least not full automation. I think the analogy that uh, I think a lot of lay people may may uh, um, uh, may resonate with some lay people, most lay people, is that we, um, uh, just like fully automated, automatically driving cars are, I think, pretty far in the future, relatively far in the future. Uh, but the technology that's being put into those uh, into that effort is actually going to make driving safer. Um, things like um, uh, adaptive cruise control or uh, lane assist, those sorts of things are the same sort of technologies that are feeding into uh, fully automatically driven cars. But and and, and you can uh, say the same sort of things about th uh, technology like ChatGPT. I don't think we're going to generate full full out papers, but in like for instance, in my case, what I did was I put in a fair amount of work on the front end, assembling and curating, and kind of abstracting these papers, and I kind of mashed them together, and then what I did was put that output, my output, into ChatGPT, and instructed it to uh, put out a five hundred to a thousand word uh, um, summary make it academic language. And then out came really in about 30 seconds, very usable output, which on the uh, back end, I still had to massage a little bit. So again, not fully automated, but helps a lot and can take a lot of the friction and the work out of the process. So it sounds like it's... Um... It's not full-on automation, not replacement. I think that's one of the things that we hear repeatedly is, um, you, you know, we're, we're going to see replacement of activities and importantly, individuals. But this was a, a substantial amount of work to actually prep for it. So it, it, the input and then, you know, there were some key phrases in there that I pick out from you, which was, you you triggered it to do some specific things in the case of, of this and ac academic language. So for me, this is the chat GPT whisperer. So you're you're something of a whisperer for, for uh, using it in an appropriate way. How much work do you think it it took to get to that point? And what did it save you? What was the what was the, the benefit analysis in your mind? So I think the pre-work took me maybe about three or four hours. Um, I would say that the um, the process that ChatGPT helped me with saved me at least two hours. Um, so it, what, it didn't take the entire load off of me, uh, but it did save a substantial amount. And I think that as the um, capacity of it increases, as it's 
fidelity and uh, accuracy improves, that will become more and more. So that maybe a year or two from now, I could, instead of doing that curation before I put it in, I could just say, these are the papers, these are the abstracts, summarize it for me along these themes and give me academic uh, language. So then that prep work that took me three or four hours could be reduced to maybe an hour and a half. Um, and that's where I think this sort of technology will, will be going in the future. And that's so where I think it's the most appropriate usage of, of right. this sort of technology. So let, let's push the envelope a little bit. And, um, you know, we've seen, um, you know, I think good and bad in terms of use cases and examples. And of course, all sorts of people have really tried to uh, push it as much as possible. But, you know, in your particular instance, one of the, the hard parts of this, in my mind, is actually finding the papers. Do you think it's plausible that it could find the papers, given, of course, that we've seen some examples where not only does it find incorrect information, but apparently seems to make it up? I found that extraordinary. But is there some potential to go go fetch and collect appropriate information with guardrails that say, hey, this is valid science, do you think? Well, I think uh, what you said is key with guardrails. So, for instance, I can if you say go fetch uh, the top emergency medicine artificial intelligence papers over the past year. I think it's certainly capable of doing that. But like you said, um, you at, at this point, you probably need to be a human to you know, quality control that, where, where you can say top 50 papers, and then you look at them. And then as a human, because and as a practicing emergency physician who keeps up on the literature, you could say, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with the, these these 25. I'm not sure about these other 25. I'm going to quickly peruse them. Oh, look, three of them are completely fake. I don't know where the heck they came from. And um, and then uh, another five of them were uh, were poorly written and they may have been cited or gotten uh, a lot, some sort of notoriety. I don't think that they're good papers, and that's where I think, you know, it, it's the combination of the human and, and using the machine to to offload a lot of that arduous work. It's it's actually very similar to um, some of the drug discovery uh, uh, efforts using artificial intelligence, where in the past you'd have humans arduously, heuristically coming up with different sorts of molecules. Mm. And then testing it out, whereas now pharmaceutical companies are using artificial intelligence um, uh, to come up with proposed molecules that may be active to affect some sort of physiologic process. And then you'll you may you may present a dozen different molecules to a uh, someone who's a research scientist, and he'll say nine of those are stupid molecules, three of them have promise. Uh, and uh, two of them are going to be very difficult to, to manufacture. Let's focus on one. And that whole process previously could have taken years or decades. Hmm. And now it can be, uh, I, I don't know how long the process is, but I would suspect that it's somewhere between a few days to a few weeks or maybe a few months. And now you've cut off years to decades off that, that, that development cycle. Yeah, I, and you bring up an interesting point, and I think it's important relative to all of this. So it's it's additive, it's supportive, you know, the human oversight. But both you 
and also in the case of the farmer, you cite examples that in my mind are, are critical here. And my question relates to this. And it, it's the the ability to tease out, um, you know, in the case of the molecules, those molecules make mo no sense. There's something going on in our brains that allow us to provide that oversight. In your example, it was, you know, there were there were failures in these papers. You, you could pick them out. Uh, is that something that can be learnt and actually become part of it in the future? Is, is the potential to do that? Because that seems a critical element as well, right? Um, maybe. TBD, very much TBD. And in my efforts as a digitician, informatician, whatever you want to call it, um, one of the things that I'm starting to, it's starting to coalesce in my head is that um, uh, in uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, what we're trying to do with all of these sorts of things is take system two sorts of processes and turn them into system one. Mm. And then when uh, we can't turn them into system one, we still have the human system one heuristics to back it up, which may or may not uh, uh, be absolutely correct. Certainly there are some fallacies in that, uh, but I think it opens up a whole different set of possibilities. And as the saying goes, I, I'm not sure who coined this, but I think it's really appropriate um, that if you have, it's not AI versus human, or it's AI plus human, a physician who is a physician isn't going to be replaced by artificial intelligence, but a physician who really uses artificial intelligence well is going to replace a physician who doesn't use artificial intelligence well or at all. Right. So uh, let me push back a little bit and say we, we've seen some instances of this. I mean, certainly some uh, software tools that have emerged uh, as a sort of precursor, preclinical uh, assessment. You're an emergency room physician. I think, you know, one of your um, superpowers is to gather huge amounts of data, discern that really quickly. And, and it's a wide variation of data inputs. It's not just, you know, verbal, it's all of those things. And then tease out a direction quickly, particularly in urgent or emergent uh, circumstances. Um, but we've seen already, I mean, you know, multiple instances of uh, the population going and saying, well, I can bypass that. Do I really need all of that expertise? Where, where are we with all of that? I mean, it feels like we, we, we're pushing out and, you know, maybe edging out some of those individuals. Yeah, well, so I want to uh, maybe go back to the Kahneman book. He cites an example of, um, I think, a fire chief or captain or something like that who was in a fire. Mm -hmm. And um, he walked in. Things seemed, at least objectively, you know, there was a fire, but it wasn't completely out of control. But he said, we got to get out of here. Um, something uh, put, set off the alarm bells. And he said, everybody out. And nobody questioned him. They just got out. A few seconds later, the entire room collapsed. There was something about his experience mm. and being able to see the whole picture that heuristically he was able to identify that. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to capture that sort of thing or an emergency physician walking into a room and saying, 
you know, all the vitals look okay, but that person looks like crap. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stay in the room and make sure that that person's okay. Or um, all the, the calculations and all our scoring tools point to something that's relatively benign, but I'm going to do a whole bunch of other tests to make sure. Now, that being said, I know I, there's a lot of fallacy in that too. I know plenty of circumstances where I've over-tested somebody um, and um, uh, you know chased, chased something down a rabbit hole that I didn't really need to. Um, but again, if you use both the human and the technology and use each one of them to do what each of them is really good at doing, then I think that combination, that that uh, that synergy is where we need to go. Right. I, I think great example. I remember that from the book as well. I, it, it was very evident. And I think you see it in other places. And, you know, medicine is also a, a good example of that. I think we probably both have instances of that. So given all of that and given that you're a digitician, I like that term, um, you know, you've you've been exploring these technologies. You know, my sense of chat GPT at this point is it, it's not that new. We, we've seen lots of this. How do we then incorporate? How is this going to be incorporated and start to deliver value and benefit? Because right now it's sort of exploratory. You, you use it as a tool, mm-hmm. but it sort of ta- saved you time. But that's not sort of cemented into a process for you. How do you see that happening? And, and where are the opportunities? So uh, you, you, you were the, you, you used the word process there. Um, uh, and what I think a lot of people may not necessarily understand well, when they see the, the front end of how healthcare is delivered, there's a lot of crap below the surface, a lot of labor and just really difficult things to do um, mm. that are, uh, that don't yield anything um, uh, or th- th- that their yield is, relatively minimal. So uh, an example of that is I, I recently was listening to some uh, information about um, Ozempic, uh, the, the what is it, the GL, GLT-1 mm-hmm. agonist yep. that's being used off, off-label, although I think it's not no longer off-label for weight loss. Um, and um, that's sort of a novel thing and let's say somebody is actually using that sort of uh, uh, medication in that way, I can guarantee you that there's a high likelihood that some of our canned instructions that we often use in EMRs doesn't exist for that. So, and then, so the classic way to do it within a healthcare enterprise is, okay, we want to create some discharge instructions for these class of medications and what are you going to watch out for and you know and and have all sorts of other information the classic way to do it is say this is what we want to write uh uh and send it off to the endocrinologist then more often than not they'll write something and then they'll have a whole bunch of references and it'll be written uh, uh to to be peer facing and we'll say time out no you got to you got to make this eighth grade uh language because that's sort of the you know, we want to have it the lowest kind of denominator for the patients. And then we'll send it back to the endocrinologist and he'll try to do some sort of massaging of that. It'll still not be right. And it'll go back and forth. Um, and that can take months, sometimes even years to do because the endocrinologist has a day job. 
So fast forward to using this technology, ChatGPT formulates uh, discharge instructions in eighth grade language for Ozempic and other similar medications uh, specifically geared towards weight loss and the um, uh, and and whatever si key side effects you want to, to look for. Uh, limited to uh, to 500 words, again, eighth grade language. Outspit something. I can guarantee you that it will probably be not 100% correct. But then at least you have a, a canvas and, and part of a picture painted for that an expert. So then you send it to that, that expert. They make a few tweaks. Somebody does some final editing. And now you've taken a process that has would typically take months and turned it into uh, a, a few weeks. Yeah, I think, I, I, interestingly, I've heard similar examples uh, along the way. Um, you know, the, the sort of shortcut tool that helps bring things together or reuse of existing information that right. we know is accurate. But, but the contrast to what I think a lot of people are proposing and are people excited about is that they are thinking that I am a patient or I'm a physician about to uh, uh, prescribe one of these medications for weight loss. I'm going to tell the computer to spit out discharge instructions on the fly. I don't think that's smart. And mm -hmm. I don't think that the technology is at, at that point yet. Right. And and in many respects, that's about source information. One of the things that really struck me, and maybe, you know, I'm using the free version. I, I don't know if you're using the paid version, but the free version feels like it's stuck in time. Um, it, it, it feels like it's 10 years old based on a couple of um, sure. applications that I've tried in terms of pulling information out. And it, to me, it's very clearly about 10 years old. I, I have some distinct markers because I looked for some very specific information and it pulled it. And when I went and checked it, it was, yeah, that was right. But it was right 10 years ago. So mm -hmm. that there's some concurrency in all of this that I think is really important. So uh, essentially, uh, let, it, let me propose, are you excited about this? And if so, why and, and what are you going to be doing with it in, in the coming uh, weeks, months, years? Oh, uh, oh, absolutely. I think I, I, I am excited about it. But I think it's, it's mainly going to be, at least in the short to medium term, uh, used to uh, reduce some of the labor of some of these sorts of things that, that, that we've talked about. And, and I also think that it can also help with uh, some, like the EMR configuration can be really, really laborious. And I think just like people have started using it for coding, I think we can start uh, exploring ways to to turn around some really, really good EMR content um, uh, in the same way that I, I, I described how, how I uh, produced that content for that paper. Right. So all in all, exciting times. I think it's, it's presented uh, for, for, you know, the general population, the healthcare population, all of these groups, a potential opportunity. Right now, it's a, a generalized tool, I think, narrowing it down into each of those segments, you know, programming, that's one of the areas I, I've explored, I, I my programming uh, chops are, you know, very dated going back to um, machine language and, you know, COBOL, which Actually, it probably is pretty good at COBOL because I think there's some significant data points. But, you know, mm -hmm. updating to all of that, um, 
good times, but you know, I'm going to pick on the term that you you came up with, which is guardrails, and I think that's the appropriate sort of use case. John, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. As is more often the case, we find the truth is so much more complicated and interesting than the fiction and the hype. Even in the use case of academic paper summarization, John found the tool to be useful, but still a need of human oversight. It did reduce the friction and work out of the process, but he did a substantial amount of prep work for it, including curation and abstraction of papers. Your better pill to swallow? is to open the door to the use cases and exploration of this technology with guardrails and explore how using AI and human expertise together can improve patient care by removing the huge amounts of friction we find in the workings of our healthcare system. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.